You go to page 17 and 18 in your booklet, there's a handout there. That, I mean, I'll kind of give a structure as I move along. Page 17 and 18. Page 17 and 18. Yeah, if you could all move up, that'd be fantastic. So we, we want to do some Q&A. Not that I can't ramble for a long time, but so, yeah. Going beneath the surface of racism, really my goal here is actually to, to get down and dirty of how we actually uh, got beneath this thing. And what was it that enabled us to break through? Because the early years we did not break through on this. It was very difficult. So, um, okay, so go to page 17, 18 in those notes, and I'll help you kind of follow along. And um, in fact, let me get these handouts too. All right. Okay. Page, is it 19, page 19? 18, 19? Or 17, 18, 19? 17, 18, okay. Page 17, 18. So I wanted to kind of give you something to kind of take home to think about. So as you just heard a little bit of our story, uh, I planted the church in 1987, and as you'll see in the top there, it was a clear non-negotiable mission in terms of uh, we were going to birth a church in the name of Jesus, but we were going to be about uh, bridging racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. And I'll talk about it in just a few minutes. I want to be really clear here. Our, our mission was not reconciliation. Our mission was Jesus. The byproduct of Jesus was reconciliation. If you don't get that right, you end up in idolatry. So you can be about reconciliation and it's really idolatry. Anything besides Jesus can become idolatry. So there are churches that want to be multiracial. They're multiracial and it's squeezing out Jesus. I'm not, now, I'm, I'm, of course they're wed and it can be misunderstood what I'm saying. I'm not saying it in a trite way. But... Uh, our mission was obviously planting a church in the name of Jesus here in Queens that would plant other churches, but it was a non-negotiable mission. So understand the location choice was key, and we always were losing people because of that commitment, whether they were black, whether they were Latino, whether they were white. I mean, not everybody wants to be part of that kind of church. And uh, so there were four key decisions and I'll go, that turned that vision into reality. Um, and I think I put them on here, okay? So, okay, good, that's all right. Yeah, so we had a clear non-negotiable mission. So, so again, I, I planted the church in 1987. From 1987 through 2006, I'm sorry, 2003. No, wait, I'm sorry, I'm gonna go back, sorry, sorry. From 1987 to 1996, we were always committed to this vision of bridging barriers, but we were not breaking through. The racial, class, economic, gender tensions were killing us. And that's when I realized that evangelical discipleship is shallow. So you understand, like, I came into this having had, I went to Gordon-Conwell and Princeton seminaries, two of the best seminaries in the country. I had 
you know, tremendous theological training. I was on staff at the University Christian Fellowship. I was, a, I was a staff worker. So I had the best training of parachurch. So I, I, I mean, I was, I was an evangelical poster child. I mean, you know, Pentecostal striped. So I was like, like I, 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 I'd been every leadership conference, every discipleship conference. I, I, I was deep in. And I realized we were planting this church that the tensions were so tremendous. I'm thinking of a Chinese young girl who was leading a small group at two Latinos, a couple African-Americans, a white person. There was so much tension in this group. People started barking at each other. She quit on me. And she was, in, uh, it was me in the Lower East Side. I'll never forget, she came to me and said, Pastor Pete, man, this thing is so over my head. And, and just, we didn't have the tools to deal with it. And then, of course, you had, um, you know, she mentioned we had an African-American youth pastor from the hood. She was going to prison for, for 20 years Somehow got off on a technicality. We hired her as our youth pastor. Okay. So you can imagine the tensions that brought with, especially I'm thinking of a number of, we, we, we would be attracting, you know, Chinese Americans and uh, Indonesian Americans. And when their kids would hit the middle age, you know, middle school, they're out of here. They're leaving. And uh, we, just had a lot, we, just, we just had tensions everywhere. And that's why we have this question we like to ask. The question is, who can your son or daughter not marry? And then we find out how much you get the gospel. And so we should say that in the early years because it was just all there. And uh, I mean, we were multiracial in the sense that we, 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 you know, on the surface, we were. But I was very aware that we had problems and, and, our, and our discipleship was not adequate for this thing making it long term. And so it was in this crucible of realizing our discipleship is shallow that really emotionally healthy discipleship got birthed. But I didn't just jump to there so quickly because some of you know my story. My own life was falling apart and I was overworked, exhausted. We had a split. Again, I was getting educated a lot on all the stripes of racism because we, we had a Spanish congregation of 250 people and the, my associate was Colombian, who was a little bit lighter skinned and the number three person was a Dominican dark skinned. And our Spanish congregation had folks from all over Latin America, but I was very unaware of the racial dynamics going on because racism is a gigantic issue in Latin America. But I was pretty unaware of it. I'm just thinking, I'm living, I'm, a, you know, I'm dealing with other issues. So this thing blew up in Spanish and 200 people left and planted a church down the street. And it really was racial and I missed it because my associate who was Colombian, lighter skin, the Dominican guy rebuked him because he, we caught him kind of messing around with money. It's a bit unethical. The dark-skinned Dominican told me, although he didn't want to, I confronted him. That was it. That was the beginning of the split. And I'll never forget, when the split happened, I was devastated, and then my Dominican, who's now pastoring, Spanish, New Life in Spanish has, you know, a thousand people down the street here, but he handed me the book on the history of Latin America by race. And he goes, Pete, if you want to understand the split, basically said, You're, you don't know what's going on, you white guy, basically. You, know, you, don't, you don't get it. You may speak Spanish, Pete, but you don't get it. So he handed me the book. And when I read it, I was like, oh, my God. So, I, you know, the history of Latin America has got its own complexity. just like Asia has enormous complexity. Um, so I was getting a lot of education. But I'm realizing this thing is, we know we're dealing with powers and principalities. But I realized evangelicalism, as we know it, is not going to change racism. The, the church is a pre, the way we do discipleship. There is no way. 
There's just no way. And I, I, I saw it and I said, well, here we are. And so I was now wrestling. When I hit my crisis in 1994, I start doing this kind of you know, therapy work and all this. But here are some, so let me just, so, so emotionally healthy discipleship, you have to understand, I don't believe you can do this without a serious discipleship model. I, I think you're foolish because you're dealing with powers and principalities and they're going to blow this thing up. And if people aren't being deeply changed by Jesus, this is not going to work. This is not going to work because you better be passionate for Christ and very self-aware um, and we began to do things like genograms, et cetera, and skills. It just changed everything. It just changed everything. So let me, let me go in order here. The four key decisions that turned a vision into uh, reality. So here they are. Um, one is a willingness to suffer and go slow. You heard about this. It's just kind of general. There was a lot of suffering. I mean, just a lot of suffering. And, and this is going to be slow. We grew, but we grew slowly. And it was, it was always, it's just suffering. I mean, if you asked my wife, Jerry, how did New Life Fellowship be so multiracial? And she would say instantly, I know she would say, suffering. Because she watched it. She goes, there's no way this can happen without suffering. All those difficult conversations, all the misunderstandings, all the being judged, all just looking foolish, the failures, um, and going slow. Uh, secondly is make, I mean, just, you know, I, I, we, had a, we had a guy come to us as an intern uh, and he came, people were attracted to the multiracial vision, so they would come, but then he realized the mess of it, and he wanted to go plant a big church. And I said, if, you're gonna, if your goal is numbers, you cannot do multiracial. And he goes, well, I, then I won't do it. I said, okay, well, that was it. He didn't. And there is a question of, you know, we ha you have values in a church. You have to, and I, I learned this the hard way, you have to determine this, what gets, if a scale of one to 10, if 10's the greatest weight, of those values, Drew just put up five values for the New City Network, right? But there's a weight on values. So, for example, we had, a, we, had a, we had a weight as a church on body life. We had a weight on multiracial, right? And the question is, which of the hills are you going to die on? And I realized the multiracial hill, I was going to die on this hill. Even if the church went down to ten people. Now, because you, you got you, you to gotta get down and dirty of at what point, how, how deep a value is this? That's the question. And I realized not everyone, I'm thinking of, you know, some other folks who came into new life, they liked a lot of parts of new life, but they weren't going to die on that hill. And when you're really in friction, the question is, are we dying on the hill or not? And I lost a couple of friends over that one. And I realized, oh... This is not a die on the hill issue for them. And, you know, they left. So the second was making thoughtful, prayerful, difficult choices. And you heard about the staffing, for example, and not, not hiring people. And I was, I was pretty constantly accused of being a power-hungry person and a control freak. And it looked like that. It did. It, it just was, I was just waiting. I just had to wait and uh, for God to emerge. It. But I did have the power. I was very aware. Here's this white... You know, my family is a mafia family on my mother's side, okay? Which, you, know, from, you know, they killed a mafia guy in Staten Island yesterday? That's what my family did, okay? My, my mother's side. Like they, like they would kill people for going through the neighborhood in Ozone Park. It's part of Queens. You, know, you get killed for going through the Italian neighborhood if you're Puerto Rican or black. I mean, they'll kill you. And so I grew up in this. I'm leading this 
And so I'm here leading the multiracial church. My family is, and I'm living in a neighborhood that's also mostly African-American. They're outraged by the whole thing. Okay, they're just like, you know, they're like, Petey, we got out of here. What are you doing in Queens, you know? We're all out in the island now, you know? And, you know, and so, but like for me to be leading this church, it was, it was like, this was, I was not the right person to be doing this. I mean, just the foolishness of God. I was very aware of that, like, oh my God, I represent racism to its tilt here in Queens. Um, you know, nature of my family. I, mean, I do have family members that have killed people over race. I do. I mean, they, they just, they did these things. They're bad people. These are not nice people. It's, it's, we hate Sicilians because they're not from Naples, where we're from. Like, the hatreds are so deep in Italian culture. I mean, it's just, it's just deep. So I came out of that, but I got saved, and I saw this was the gospel. I'm just like, there's not even a question. We're going for this thing. You know, this is what it's all about in following Jesus. But the choices of everything from where you live, where you place the church, uh, staying with people as they're, you know, you're going through ups and downs, uh, setting biblical criteria for who sits at the table, that was probably one of the biggest things once we got into the motion of discipleship, who sat at the table in these deep discussions, if you were not living out serious discipleship, you were not at the table. If you were not broken and vulnerable, you were not at the table. If you were not in touch with your family of origin and how it's impacted who you are, you were not at the table. Because I don't know if you're talking about your race now or we're talking about your unresolved issues. And you're so unaware, you can't even sort that out. So there was one... African-American woman I was quite close to, incredibly gifted, Harvard MBA graduate, blah, 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 blah. Is this on tape? Anyway, so, so she, you know, but she had a lot of stuff, but she was brilliant. But when we, you know, you're in, you're in some highly charged conversation, you understand, like, you're, you got a, you know, whatever, you got a Chinese-American, you got an African-American, you got a Latina, you got a white person, you're, having, you're on a public stage, you're discussing these issues. It's very intense, all right? You're taking questions. We, we need people mature up front in dealing with this. But she would get triggered. And then all of a sudden, she'd come out slicing. And all the room would just go dead. And I'm like the white guy over here, like, oh, my God. You know, so I just, so... I, I, so the biblical criteria was if you don't have the character, you're not getting at the table. That was a gigantic decision in 1996. Um, and it changed everything because basically you had to have the character, not just the color. And uh, so, and you heard it, you know, Drew's over in the room, Drew, Drew and Rich were the two candidates. I wish we could tell them how the story one, one of the real pillars at our church over the years was, a, was a, one of our elders named Greg Gardner. He was an African-American from Crown Heights. Remember Crown Heights with all that tension with the Jewish community? He, he was like right in the center of all that, all right? So he had a lot of reason to be angry at a lot of people. And um, uh, he's now in Atlanta, but he was probably an elder for 15 to 20 years. Like, he, was, he was a major force uh, in our reconciliation of the church. As an African-American, he had such maturity, you know, and such depth spiritually. But I'll never forget it. When we were doing my succession, he just stood up in an elder meeting and said, I want to be really clear here. Because we had, a, we had a, a, a prayerful process of my succession. And Drew and Rich were two candidates. And he says, listen. He says, we are going to follow God's choice. And he goes, now we all know of the history of the Korean tensions with the African-American community. He goes, I will gladly submit to Drew if he is God's person. 
But we'll all know when it comes. We gave it a four and a half year process that we said it'll emerge over time who's God's person because I want to be really clear, folks. We are not making a decision based on color of skin. We are making a decision based on who is God choosing for this position. And we will all back it 100%. And I was like, that is leadership. And that's where the elder, I think the elder board is what made the succession process so excellent because they, they were that godly. And, uh, you know, I, I just appreciated that. So, uh, but the biblical criteria of who sits at the table, and then lastly, we were able to engage in difficult conversations, and we had a lot of them. Um, and so just, you know, we, I mean, you know, we were having difficult conversations with an African-American community of color of skin of African-Americans. They don't want to talk about that publicly. West Indians, Africans, African-Americans, with tremendous tension in our church around all those issues. We had the Chinese. I, when Red got hired, I had a Chinese come person, a couple of Chinese people come to me and says, Red does not count as an Asian because he's Filipino. Because you don't think about history, because Filipinos are like the bottom of, they're like the bottom. Now the irony, you go to Philippines and you'll see them spitting on Muslims. I mean, so just, you know, racism goes with sin. So it's every, every country culture has got it. But I'll just never forget that. And I have this huge discussion. They read as an Asian. I'm, you know, he's Asian. They said, I know, but he's Filipino. It's like, it'll never count for us as Chinese. Like, it's just, I was like, I, I was intense. But I'm confronting him now with his racism. And so I know that's the way you may see it, but that's not the way God sees it. And he's God's person. And he's going to be the community all director. And he's going to be on the executive team. And he's going to have all his power and all that stuff. So, Okay. But here's the contribution of EH discipleship uh, to bridging barriers. Um, oh, in fact, I, I would say, I, in fact, I, I would say this: that emotionally health, emotional health, and racial reconciliation are inseparable. I would say that. In other words, if you want to do racial reconciliation well and deeply in community, because not just like as what would you call it, like the subway thing, you're. You have a church and everyone looks multiracial, but they're really not living. You're not in each other's houses. You're not doing life together. It's, but if you're going to do like life together across these huge chasms of culture and class and color with all the history that was talked about today, um, emotional health is a non-negotiable. So here's the um, contribution. And I, I listed here one, two, three, four, five, six that I think are significant. And for leaders... You have, as a, the leadership has to live these things on a very high level. In other words, it's not just, oh, I did the course, you know, I did a, a skill. or No, no, it's like this is in you. You own this. It's part of who you are. So here's the first one. It's calling people to a radical desert spirituality with Jesus. Um, I, 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 I got to say it again. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want. I don't say. Please don't take this flippantly. It, it's. It's. We're calling people radically to Jesus, not to American Christianity. We're leaving the culture, and we're leaving American Christianity, and we are calling people to the desert, like the Desert Fathers, to a to a radical walk with Jesus a focus on Jesus, that, the most, that he is our life. You know, I'm reading John of the Cross right now, the spiritual canticles of John of the Cross, and 
I, I just love these monastic spiritual writers because they're, they're so about Jesus, you know, it's like, and getting cleansed of the idols of the heart and everything in the way of Jesus. That one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and seek his temple, that we are about Jesus. And so, you see, the reason I say it's so important because we're calling people to a, a calling of a spirituality that's way beyond I would call contemporary American Christianity, which is spectator, consuming, hey, great sermons, great worship sets. No, no, we are calling you to like, you're leaving everything for Jesus. Everything. And you're, you're, that, he is your life. So I, I, that shift anchors us in this room. Again, we're not about reconciliation first. We are so about Jesus. It's a byproduct of that. Someone, someone gave, said, Pete, that's going to be misunderstood. I don't know how to say it better. If you've got a better way, let me know. I just, all I know is it's a radical desert spirituality. And that's what I like about monasticism. And just, you know, monasticism came from North Africa. It's African. Are you aware of that? It's African. And the desert fathers were from Egypt. And actually, uh, I'm taking a course at the Center of African Studies at Yale independent study, uh, because I've been for the last couple of years working on the roots of African Christianity, which are the root, Africa is what birthed the early church and the early church fathers, and they influenced the the Mideast and Europe. But again, due to racism, uh, it's like Europe came to Africa, but there's a whole history of the church in Africa, which is unbelievable. In fact, if you go to the, um, if you really want to deal with reconciliation, I believe in the United States, you really got to go to history. And right now, the center of the global church is in Africa and China. You know, if you look at the history of the church, it has moved. You know, it started, you know, Jerusalem, went to Antioch, you know, Rome, Constantinople, uh, you know, Europe, Great Britain. The center of the church is Africa right now. There'll be 600 million Christians in Africa, they say, by 2025. 600 million Okay, but we don't pay attention to that. But the, in the early church, there's a book called Tom, written by Thomas Oden. There's a whole army of church scholars working on the history of the early church and trying to bring a balance to the fact that it was the African church that formed Tertullian and you know, um, Cyprian and Augustine and others who were the early church scholars who shaped the Nicene Creed. Uh, and what we consider orthodox doctrine today, um, and they're not given the credit for what it's worth. And if you, and, and I know some people speaking all the black colleges in America saying, no, Christianity, the last thing Christianity is a white thing. It's actually more of a black thing. And the whites got it from the blacks. It's just very interesting, isn't it? It's very, very fascinating. I'm going to write about that someday. Anyway, number two, utilizing genograms for self-awareness and transformation. Um, you, you know, uh, this issue of a genogram, which did I, let me see if I, did I throw in a genogram after this? I don't know if I did or not. Let me see. Oh yeah, I did. Huh. Wait a second. Oh, there it is. Oh, I see. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. Let me go back. Okay. I know what I did. Okay. Let me, let me go back. Radical spirit of Jesus. There's, the, there's a, a 
Okay, that's a monastery. That, that's what we're calling people to. In a sense, I'm gonna give you just a picture of it, that this, this kind of a, like this is outside the box for everybody, but almost like a monastic life. Um, and, I, and, I, and I like that, and we're getting people to slow down their too much activity to slow down to be with Jesus, out of which they serve him. But I'm letting you know that if you don't succeed in this, your reconciliation is gonna have problems. Because people aren't anchored in Jesus and all of a sudden you're just, you're scattered. But the second is this issue of genograms for self-awareness and transformation. So here, here's a genogram, right? That's my genogram. We spent um, years, it took us like 17, 18 years to actually take this tool that was just used in therapist's office and bring it into, into discipleship. But this changed in 1996 in, in, in New Life Fellowship Church, it changed the landscape of our church. Because everyone started doing genograms. And so when you do a genogram, here's a beautiful thing. I got a Cuban over here with Chinese parents or grandparents? Grandparents. Great-grandparents. Who knows who's in the room over here, right? But when you do a genogram, going back three to four generations, of how your family of origin has impacted who you are today, do you know something? Everybody's broken. I don't care the color of your skin. China, Microsoft PhDs. And we have done genograms of people from all over the world in our church. Uh, I mean, incest, rape, uh, you know, abuse, alcoholism, mental illness, shattered marriages, every family is broken by sin. And when you as a community start doing that kind of discipleship and work, it just, it just, Level, I, I see you as a person, I just, you're just, and you see me as like, oh my gosh, because Arrow was abused, like, look how broken this guy is, and you're like, yeah, look how broken you are, and we're all at the table in Jesus. You know, it's like, like that's, it, it's just, it just, you can't appreciate trying to do reconciliation without that. You're just, you're just telling people what to do, doctrine, get together, let's have dinner together, let's talk about the issues and the history, and you, let me tell you something, that, that talk we just heard on, you know, Native American genocide, that was quite intense, wasn't it? That's really intense. I can't say I've ever heard one quite that clear before. Um, but I just know this. So I'm going to get together with a bunch of, we don't have, we have, we've had two Native Americans in our church all these years. And, um, but if we're going to have a church, we're going to really have a dialogue about that. I got to know that, like, we're all doing genograms here. Because it's all by the grace of Jesus that we're standing. We're all broken and vulnerable. But so, yes, there's a genogram in a sense. America has a genogram, right? And he was bringing us to the genogram of, of church history a little bit. Um, every country's got one. Every culture's got one. And every family's got one. But, but not everybody wants to do this, just so you know. This is not fun. This is not easy, and this is not pleasant. And so, at least in our context here, if you were going to be in leadership, not only were you going to do it in, as part of, like, the course, emotionally discipleship course, we're actually going to sit down with you for a couple hours and talk to you about it. Because there's so many ways to look at this, right? Whether it's, you know, you, you could, this is a lifelong work. The first principle of emotional discipleship is know yourself that you may know God. Drew and I were just talking about, we both come from abused backgrounds. And, you know, I've been doing this work for 23 years. But let me tell you something. Is you, the, the more time passes, layers of that abuse come forth. In other words, you, you're constantly getting to know yourself with age and the depths of it 
we're reading a book on, I'm starting reading it too, Drew, you know, it's like, this thing is so profound, but enables me to know God and actually know people. But if you don't know your story and the pain of your story, it's gonna be very difficult for you to know the pain of other people's story. And so, let me make sure I have, I have it in there about grief and loss, right? Um, let me make sure I got this in here. Let me just make sure, yeah, yeah. So, um, I have been reading broadly for a very long time. On, because, Rich mentioned because of this whole journey. So we have a lot of Africans now in our church. Africans are coming into New York. And someone had mentioned to me from the Congo about Leopold. I'll give you a story of Leopold from Belgium. And the history was Europe was also carving up Africa. Okay, in the late 1800s. They're carving a place up and Belgium wanted a piece of the action. And Leopold was the king and they went after the Congo, which is quite a, if you go on a map, it's quite a large area. But what this guy did was so intense. Because if you want to understand Rwanda, we have some Rwandans. Here. You want to understand Rwanda, you got to go back to Europe and understand the history here. And I read this book, and I was like, oh my God. So, so again, when you get to oppression, you get to imperialism, racism. It, this is global, everybody. This is in Yemen today. This is, this is, this is, this is the world of sin. So part of getting involved in this genogram is you're involved in people's lives. Like you're in Egypt and she's telling you your genogram in your basement about her genogram and why these women are being abused. Or Kyrgyzstan, why the women get, from Kyrgyzstan, they get taken away by men, they get raped, and they got to marry the guy. And that's just a culture because it was a Muslim-dominated country. So you're just in all these places. But I tell you, to have that Kyrgyzstan woman and the Egyptian woman next to an African-American with their pain of being, being black and American walking in a store and she's telling about what it's like to be black, what it's like to walk into, into you know, a store and have that security guy kind of follow you in an indiscreet way. But every day, it's, just, it's so powerful and bonding because you're learning from each other and listening and it's great for everyone to step out and see not just our own stuff in the United States, but the global stuff. It kind of... I'm not saying it normalizes and makes it less here. It do, it's not that. It's just that it, it, it makes you realize how demonic the whole thing is, how evil it is, and we're not alone. I just came back from the Australia where my daughter lives, and uh, I was shocked to hear that they, the, the Brits went in there and they made it a penal colony, if you know the story, history of Australia, but they just killed all the Aborigines. They just killed them all. I mean, there was, it wasn't even like a... No, I, I don't think we kind of set out Universally, we're going to kill all Native Americans. We killed them, obviously, lots of them. But it wasn't quite that blatant. They were blatant about it. Some survived, but it was like it was an extermination that went on for decades. And uh, they're trying to repent of it now. It's just a, it's very interesting there. But so, I mean, there's this, this treatment, you know, out of Europe. So anyway, the genogram thing is just, it's just, it's, it's, it's big. I, I can't even imagine doing this without it um, in terms of discipleship. Even India, you know, we had Indians in our church. We have Indians in our church. But you want to know about racism? Just have some Indians in your church. You want to know about racism? Like the caste system and oh my God. Dang, you know. But don't despair because, you know, God's in the whole thing. So V is, is valuing. Um, no, I, I, in fact, if you ask me a question later, I will get into the value of, um, you know, the, the beauty of it. 
But this value of brokenness and vulnerability, I don't know how else to communicate this, this value of being non-defensive, open to criticism, letting go of power. I mean, I'm not talking about doing it as a perfunctory vulnerability thing. I learned in seminary, always have a vulnerable illustration so people can connect with you. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about reading a Brene Brown book on vulnerability, all right? We're not talking about that. I'm talking about a deep vulnerability where you just, you're just able to share out of your weaknesses honestly, uh, own it, and you can just, because out of that you can actually enter people's pain. And is grief and loss on there? Is, is it one of the points? Okay, good, good, good. Um, so as you're doing this and you're doing this, you know, you have different folks that in your church and you're trying to do a multiracial thing, I'm going to let you know, like, you don't want to do anything public. Like, you're dealing with powers and principalities of evil. Just, there are demonic powers around this race thing. And if there's an opening of character, this thing is going to blow. I'm letting you know because it's so intense. So it requires godly people bringing leadership. Honestly, if New Life didn't have godly elders, and I mentioned this guy Greg to you, um, I, we, we would not have held together. It just, it just, you, you need godly people of different races and cultures to give leadership because no one person can do it. And at New Life, I think we, we had the elder board over the years that was solid enough and diverse, but we never, we never had a bad elder meeting. And we basically had a commitment that if, if we didn't agree, have a sense of this is what God was saying, we would hold off until the next meeting. Like we were gonna walk in relational oneness. We were, we were so connected relationally that, that those relationships carried us in difficult times. So imagine, for example, that youth pastor I mentioned, I, I had to fire her, okay? White Pete Scazzaro fired this African-American young woman, okay? It had to do with, you know, had to do with her life and it, it had to be done. It was complicated. The board, of course, was, un, they were involved. It wasn't like I just did it unilaterally, but all hell broke loose and I mean, it was like, I mean, shots were being fired. You white, you know, you know, and, you know, and then you had, you know, it was just, it was just, it was challenging. I had white people go after me, angry at me too, that loved her. You know, it was just, it was just, anytime you let someone go, it's going to be challenging. But then the racial thing just brings it to another level. And uh, you just, our ability to stay together as a board um, and own mistakes that we'd made and et cetera. But the whole brokenness and vulnerability thing, I, I don't know how to say it of just, um, I would, I would really, I would not have public discussions. I would encourage you or serious discussions or put people in leadership that are not vulnerable and broken. Don't do it. Just hold off and wait because you want people of great character so that they can hold the line of godliness, being misunderstood. Uh, they won't be impatient when somebody makes, people, we're gonna make racist remarks. It just happens. I mean, people are gonna say things and you know, I, I thought of like, we had a Korean American intern um, that was sitting next to an African American pastor and woman and, and he was just gone, his growth, he was in his growth curve, but he was, making a lot of comments that were quite 
She felt racist, okay? So she would come to my office furious. Okay, Linda Johnson, you know, Linda Johnson, you know, and get rid of this guy, okay? And I'm like, Linda, calm down, you know, because he's in his, and Linda was a very godly person, and she, they became friends, and it was all good, but, you know, that, you know, you just, it's part of the package, right? And she had to learn about Korean history and a little bit, and, you know, why are, you know, I was in Seoul, and it wasn't until I went to the, you know, really went to the Korean War Museum and understood a bit of their history and all Japanese invasions. I'm like, makes, now the culture's starting to make sense to me. A lot of sense, but it's, again, we're back, everyone's got, everyone's got a genogram, everyone's got a story. Uh, so, uh, creating a new language and culture is a new family of Jesus. I, that was really, that was quite, uh, quite big. Um, in 1996, we started this journey called the Mojang Discipleship, and I, I started using that language, we are gonna be a new culture in the new family of Jesus. And now that culture transcends all our cultures. Now, again, it wasn't like I never said it before, but now I put some teeth into it. Uh, so we're transcending American culture, first of all, uh, but we're also transcending your ethnicity culture and mine. And we're gonna form a new culture, a new life fellowship called the new family of Jesus, and that uh, we have a new language. And that language really came out of the skills. We began to develop these skills in 1996, that's part, we call today the Emotional Healthy Relationships course. And uh, you, you, so you understand, so again, we made a decision in 1996, we got to do Emotional Discipleship that we're not doing this traditional church thing anymore in terms of the way evangelicals do discipleship. You know, small groups, a few questions on Bible study. We said, we're moving to this. And Genogram gives you a piece of what that looks like. That was, now that was another decision that we lost a couple of people over that because they didn't come to church for that. They loved the praise and worship. They loved we were serving the poor. They loved a lot of things about new life, but they didn't come for this. And, uh, and so uh, we began to have in our basement, Jerry and I, at that point, a group in our basement, actually we started before that, but that we were gonna mentor and do some serious discipleship with. Um, and uh, we were gonna make disciples. We were gonna like, we're, 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 gonna, we're gonna do some, especially with future leaders, invest ourselves in some folks. And so we developed these two courses called the Emotional Discipleship Course, part one and two, that, that this has developed over these 23 years. Um, and uh, the first one, it's a centralized course uh, at tables, not a small group curriculum. And there it is. Everyone in the church goes to these courses. It is our DNA as a church. It's, 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 the, it's the kind of introduction into the new culture uh, that the leadership then enforces. And... There's a spirit. So you here's a theology that in 1996 we began to bring in to be the new culture. And uh, know yourself that you may know God. You got to know who you are. Go back to go forward. You've got to go back to your history to see where you come from. Uh, journey through the wall. That we all hit walls, grief and loss. I'll talk about that. Rhythms of daily office and Sabbath. Growing into emotionally mature adult and go to the next step to develop a rule of life. In 1996, we made, we made a decision right there. If you're not a loving person, you're not mature. That was gigantic. Prior to that, I could not have said that. Basically, if you were gifted, anointed, and you could get it done, you preach great, you're mature, you're great. 1996, after we crashed and almost burned, um, we saw the ugly side of church, and we came into this emotional discipleship thing I want you to understand this. Jerry and I came out, we took a sabbatical for three to four months to get our own life together and our marriage. We came back and we said, we're going to bring this to our church. 
if everybody leaves, it's okay. That's how, you understand, like, we were going to die on this hill of emotionally healthy discipleship that we are going deep beneath the iceberg, no more lying, no more pretending, no more religious jive. Because I'm telling you, in the reconciliation discussion, because it's so intense, it can almost get religious faster. And so we just said we're done with religious, because it's, it's yep, yeah, listen, we all have a false self that comes out of our family of origin. Of, we end up a pretend self. And then you put the layer of Christian culture on it. Now we've got two false selves to deal with. So we said, okay, we gotta deal, we got we gotta take off the false self of their family of origin. Then I gotta get the Christian false self off them too, the religious thing. So we can get down and dirty here and actually have a real community. And uh, we said, if everybody leaves the church, I, I remember walking up the stairs the first week I was back. Drew, it was like, you weren't here, 1996. I'll never forget it. Jerry looked at me and she says, you realize everybody might leave because we were like, we had been changed. And we both said, it's okay. We'll start with zero. But we're going to build an authentic Broken, real church. Same mission, but what we did, we're not doing this anymore. And we're not going to tolerate it. So I actually had to go sit down with some people, remove them from leadership, actually. I'll give you one example. I had a guy who fasted 40 days at a time, three times a year. Now, you tell me. And he had words of the Lord coming out of the gazoo. He said, word of the Lord for you, man. I see you, brother. You know, and... And, and, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, you know. And, so, and he'd be sitting there in my sermon, and he's got the Bible open because he's not listening to me because you couldn't teach him because he's got a direct line. I don't know if you have those people in your church. We had a bunch of these folks. It's direct lines to heaven. I was just a, a problem to get by, but he always had a word. And I never get sitting down with his brother. I said, listen to me. I said, your wife is miserable. You're defensive. I experience you as defensive and proud and unteachable. So from this point forward, I don't want you prophesying to anybody at our church. I want you to sit and learn, and I want you to get your marriage in order, and then we'll talk about leadership again. That didn't go well. He left, but it's all right. But I just, I I wasn't going to tolerate this anymore. That was like big. It was just big. And uh, so we began to shift. And then we began to develop uh, these skills. And um, I'm sorry, go back here. These uh, eight skills uh, from 1996, we began to just one at a time of how we do relationships and language in the new family of Jesus. Genogram's number four there, but that was gigantic. In fact, in the beginning, we just had one, listen incarnationally, number six. Listen and speak. Speak clearly, respectfully, honestly, and in a timely fashion, and you're going to listen like Jesus and enter people's world. Incarnation, you're going to enter people's world. That was like gigantic. We just started with that. That was a revolution in the beginning. We, ran a, we used to run a whole day retreats on speaking and listening because it was so radical for people. And again, it was funneling out like, who's really going to do this community thing? And I would say at 96, I really felt like we began to break through the racial discussion because we were really forming a community. And we, we just, I, I, I don't know, it just, it just something happened. I, it just, it was real. And I would say from 96 on at New Life Fellowship Church, um, not that we didn't have tensions, but I felt like we were on the other side. 
We just were on the other side. We were enjoying the fruit and the glory of the different cultures. We were constantly dealing with, oh yeah, that's your Indonesian culture, stab your husband in the back, you know? No, we don't do that in the new family of Jesus. Okay, you're African-American, you hate me because I'm white, I get it, but you know what? You're in a new family of Jesus, you gotta deal with that because I am your brother in Christ and so you gotta work on your forgiveness issue, okay? I gotta work on my power. We all got our issues to work on, okay? Chinese, you think all these people, you think I'm a ghost because I'm white? Okay, I'm not Chinese, you got that issue to deal with, all right? We're in the new family of Jesus, you know, I had a Japanese girl marry an African-American in our church. The pa- her pastor, her father's parents' pastor called us up from Japan to break off the relationship. And he goes, we don't do this. The pastor's saying, we don't do this in Japan through an interpreter. You don't have, we don't marry a black person. I said, we're, I said, we're in the new family of Jesus. And she wants to marry him and I'm going to marry them. They're yelling at me on the phone in Japanese. <laughs> you know what I know, you know? But this new family of Jesus and new language was revolutionary. How do we make a complaint? I notice and I prefer. You know, so the, all these skills have a language to them. And we began, and Jerry and I, that's why we were a smaller church. We reinforced it as a leadership. Like we were, we were like, we just, we were on it. Like we were, you, you, you missed it? We're going to talk to you about it after the meeting. Like we were just, we were like just on it with the leadership. Because we knew if the leadership doesn't get it, we don't have a future. And uh, so we slowed down and, and basically this, 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 you know, we began to disciple people in relationships, that was gigantic. So you see on the left side, Genesis 3, defensive, low self-awareness, isolation. That's how most people live. Now you got folks living on the left side and you're trying to do reconciliation, just then, it ain't gonna work. How are you gonna do it? You can quote the Bible, you can give them a vision for it, you can tell them all the wonders of it, but they need Jesus and discipleship to get to the other side, they can't even get along with people of their own family, okay, the same color, let alone someone from the other side of the world. But you know what we found out? It's just, it's human beings. And you understand, if they can't do it in their own family, how are they going to do it with someone from the other side of the planet? So that's, again, the, the, the emotional discipleship course part two is all about that. So again, it's two courses, but it's one course, but two parts. And, uh, it's, it, and we say these course is just an introduction. It's just an introduction to a discipleship that deeply changes lives. Then the leadership's got to reinforce it and build on it um, and live it. So again, you want to pick up this kit. If you don't get this kit, you should get this kit and uh, bring it to your church because it's, it's all there in one package. But you got to get trained. It's a big thing, everybody. This is not like plug it in, kumbaya. This is like your life. You have to live it to bring it. And... Um, Okay, grief and loss. This, this, is, this is like gigantic. I didn't do grief and loss prior to 1996. I, I didn't, I just, it's not part of evangelical theology. It's just, and he mentioned it today. Um, uh, it was mentioned today. But again, we have a whole book called Lamentations. Two-thirds of the Psalms are laments. I mean, it's everywhere in the Bible. So you know, I had not grieved my own losses. At, prior to 1996, I wrote a, a a 25-page exegesis paper in seminary on one of the laments from Psalms. It was in Hebrew, and you write an exegesis paper, interpreting it. Imagine, a whole semester's work. But the professor never said to me, you too need to lament your losses. Like, he never made the application that this is something we're to do. I said, I, I, a whole semester, 25-page paper, and it was just all head. So it wasn't until my life crashed and fell apart. I'm in therapy. I'm like, okay, now I start getting in touch with my 
pain of my life. My wife, of course, she's miserable being married to me, but I, because I don't feel my own pain, I can't enter her pain. Do you understand? So I can't enter anybody's pain because I'm just, I shut those emotions down of all the abuse growing up. So this, I mean, you just, how are you going to do reconciliation with people who don't grieve? I mean, how, how is it even possible? So I've been, I've been with people doing reconciliation. I'm saying, I, one guy in our church, a white guy, this black guy comes to me in our church, African-American, lives in Harlem, and he said, Pete, I'm so fed up with this one person, you know, because he doesn't get it about racism. The white guy doesn't get it. He's a racist. And I'm like, all right, you know. And I said to him, listen, but you have to understand, he doesn't feel anything. Like, he doesn't do feelings. His wife is lonely and and she's the same ethnicity and the same color. And do you understand? You're looking for feeling. You're looking for like this resonance of grief and loss of what it means to be African-American and American. What it's been like for you to live 45 years and all the racism. And you're telling him this and you get stoicism. You get nothing. And you're angry at him. I said, you don't understand. His wife gets nothing because there's, no, there's nobody home. His discipleship is so shallow. He can't possibly connect with you. He doesn't connect with anybody. Just, but if you grieve your own losses, you can grieve anybody's losses. But do you understand we're trying to do reconciliation which requires grieving people's pain, but that means you've grieved, you're able to grieve. And uh, that, that's, this is like, I, I don't know how to emphasize, it means you know how to feel and it's just, it's just huge. Um, and then prioritizing incarnational presence and love. And, and by that I mean, People have been trained to be present. They can enter your world and actually be present. You know, you know some people, you talk to them and they're like looking around. They're, like you know they're not there because they're so distracted. Jesus was present with people. Love is being present with people. That is something I've got to learn and grow into. When you're super busy, it's hard to be present. If you're not present with yourself, you're not going to be present with somebody else. So that's a gigantic discipleship issue. So again, it's part of the relationship skills. It's a whole way of living life that I'm going to be present with people. Though you got to, because people are not present. I mean, most, very, very few people are. You, you pay a therapist to listen to you. We pay them to give us 50 minutes and listen to us because no one, people don't listen. So this is, um, you know, this issue of love is indispensable. So there we go. So because sacred, when there's presence, there is sacred space. That's from Martin Buber, the Hasidic theologian. Don't ever forget this. I don't care what nationality people are and where they come from, parts of the world. If two people can actually be present with each other, God comes. That was a Martin Buber insight. And you're going to experience God in your midst by creating the environment where people actually can be present with each other. And that's where the emotionally healthy skills of listening and speaking are so key and vulnerability and brokenness. But I don't have an, Martin Buber said it was a mystery He's a dead Hasidic theologian. But I've experienced it enough to know it is a reality. God comes in that space. And I don't know how he does it, but he just comes. It's supernatural. When there is an I-thou connection, my world and your world, we actually connect as a thou. Something happens there. So where do we go from here? I'll take some questions there. Um, well, let me take some questions. Let me, just, let me take them. Stop here for a second. Okay. And I, I can ramble a bit more. All right. Let me stop. And uh, we have microphones? Sure. Oh, good. But we can just talk loud. Um, I don't know, are you videoing this? Are you videoing this? 
guys? So we need microphones, so get some mics, that'd be helpful. Uh, so let's, let me take a few questions before I kind of bring my closure uh, to this thing uh, of your next steps. Let me, wait, as, you, as you're thinking here, there's a mailing list on, that, on the table. If you'd like to be on our pastor's leader's mailing list out of emotional discipleship, fill that out, put your name, and just put your email address, and then we'll put you on the mailing list at the end. But uh, okay, yes. If you could stand up, that'd be awesome. Okay. Well, so you said if you're not a loving person, you're not mature. Yeah. So where do you get your definition of what is a loving person? I, I'm, I'm asking that honestly. No, that's, no, that's what um, I'm thinking. That's a great you know, question. Sort of how do you assess who's a loving person yeah, and yeah. who's not, particularly given different temperaments yep. and um, people who are really trying to get over the fact that they don't do feelings um, sort of how do you, how do what's your rubric for deciding yeah. who's a loving person? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not going to say this flippantly. Um, so we all uh, let's just, let me just go back for a moment. Let's agree that for Paul, that is the criteria for maturity. First Corinthians 13, um, and so and he describes some qualities of love there. It's first Corinthians, love is patient and kind, etc. He gives some great qualities right there. Uh, I would look at Jesus as my model of love, and I would say it's, it's, it's safety, approachability, gentleness. Jean Vanier, you've been with him from La Arch, he defines it as gentleness. Very interesting, out of his, all of his decades with people who with disabilities. Um, I think of words like safety, presence, uh, approachability, non-defensiveness. So someone can come to me and say, Whatever, it doesn't matter what they say, I don't get triggered. You know, I'm not highly reactive. We're all reactive, right? But I'm just, it's that ability. Jesus could be with Matthew and his friends at his house. They're not living anything of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter. He's fine. They're, all, they, they're comfortable in his presence. And I think that's a great criteria for loving. Yes, others. Yes, right here. Oh, wait, 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 Mike's going to come. We'll get, it on. we'll get this on tape. All right, so how do, I get this, how do we get this started in a large church? Would you start with leadership going through? Yeah, yeah. The emotionally, emotionally healthy? Yeah, uh, uh, now, yeah, so let me, let me, I'll start with, let me, t- let me answer this question partially right here. It's a great, where do I start? So this is a very long journey, right? So it obviously starts personal, just you. And even if you're not the lead pastor, it still starts with you mm-hmm. because we can't bring people where we've not gone, right? right. And that's always going to be the key. I don't think it matters your ethnicity. Honestly, if you want to lead a multiracial church, what matters is your person. And so personally, I would say you want to begin to engage a bit of emotional discipleship stuff. I pick up the Emotionally Leader book. Just begin to go through stuff yourself, uh, podcast books. Uh, and then I think there is a team issue here of your leadership. Uh, in some ways, you, you're going to, you're going to, there's two ways to come at it. One is like a lot of leadership just talk through the Emotionally Leader book one chapter at a time. It kind of gives that introduction to what does it look like on a leadership level? vision-wise. There's actually an e-book that just came out. It's free on our website. It's called Six Marks of a Church Culture that Deeply Changes Lives. And it's actually the fruit of many years of work. It's a short e-book of what's the culture we're trying to create in the church. And uh, there's actually six marks to that culture. I don't think I have it on the... Um, 
Right. Oh, here it is. Yeah, there it is. You know, uh, it's an ebook. But slow down spirituality, integrity and leadership, beneath the surface discipleship, healthy community, passionate marriages and singleness, every person in full-time ministry. And believe it or not, I, I, I would connect reconciliation with marriage and singleness as well. But that's a larger discussion for another day. Uh, you need discipled, healthy, passionate marriages and discipled, healthy singles in a church to do reconciliation. But that ebook slash church culture kind of lays it out. Um, but I think we gotta have a vision of the kind of church we're trying to build. Um, it's more, I'd say it's more the culture. What's the culture? And I see this as New Life Fellowship. That is our culture that we're seeking to continually build and work on. Um, I would encourage, that, that's worth a discussion. I don't know, Joe, have you had a chance to talk about it with your team yet? This thing? It's worth talking, I'd be interested in what comes out of it, but I, I, I realize we need it, it's not just, that's what we're after. How you get there is many different paths, but your leadership's gonna be key. And then I think there is a, there's a motion of leader book, which you wanna get, and that's a nice thing to talk, tons of leadership teams just go chapter by chapter, and it kind of slaps people around, face your shadow, what do I mean to lead out of your marriage, things like that, and, um, but it's, it's a high-level discipleship book, but it causes people to realize, oh my gosh, we got a problem as a leadership and they, or, or we want to, we want, this is a hard road to go. This is not, this is, this is different. This is going to be a paradigm shift and you're going to hit resistance. So you had better be convinced like God's in this for you and your church. It'll flourish, but you're going to get some hits and you've got to get yourself re-equipped and retrained. And, and then there is a, t- a church, I think there's a church element that you want to begin to bring into your church at some point. And that's where the discipleship course comes in. You got to get trained and uh, then you pilot it, and it's a very long, Drew, you can talk about that in a few minutes, but it's a very long process and slow, and, um, but it starts personal team and then, and then church, okay? All right, others, questions? Yes, right here. Do you got a, who's got a, there we go. Just raise your hands, other of you, and we'll get the microphone to you pretty quickly then. Yes. Yeah, I was wondering, what does emotional healthiness look like? Um, in real time when somebody is experiencing injustice, um, what, is, what does that look like for you? I, I've been, um, six years ago, not to, like January, six years ago, one of my students was beat by the police and I was over a uh, program. And it, somebody wanted to interview me about it and I've been going about the stories and just kind of going back in the past and seeing how we handled that, how we had a counselor do um, just kind of crisis intervention and things like that. But I was just wondering from your perspective what that looks like for somebody that's experiencing justice, that's dealing with maybe a crisis situation. So you're referring to this fellow got stopped by the police, that was the crisis, the justice around the whole? Well, yeah, the, the, the crisis was the student being beat by the police um, unfairly and during lunch, during lunch break, right? God. And then we, so then we had, so I, I felt the winds of institutional racism at that time trying to silence, you know, what happened and a video came out and so forth. But, 
you know, our whole program was going through this. Got it. 30 kids and things like that. So I'm just looking back over that as, you know, what I did, where my anxiety was, what yeah. my emotions, we went to the precinct, things like that, job being threatened for speaking out. And just, so I'm just wondering what that looks like for yeah. somebody that's experiencing an injustice. What does yeah. that look, what does this look like? Yeah, I, I, I would, I, would com- I don't have a quick answer for you, but I would say that similar, it's injustice, I would consider high level leadership also, that's incredibly complex, right? Just so much going on in that moment. Uh, there's so many players, there's authority figures, there's institutional racism, this is personal life, his triggers, his self-image, my self-worth. The level of discipleship he's in at that moment, like where's his walk with Jesus? I mean, there's so many factors going on. Just like when we're in leadership on a, on a board level and stuff breaks out, right? And I, was, I was talking to Mike earlier about somebody who said some things to him, which I think were potentially hurtful and loaded, but complicated. It wasn't a simple but he's a lead pastor of a church with someone in leadership. Those are complex situations because we're dealing with systems, a system, not just simply an individual. And that person, in your case, is is a part of a system of one, think of all the systems, is it he or she? It's a he. He. He's part of a his family of origin system. He's part of the African-American system. He's part of the organization system. Is he a member of your church? Is he a member of a church system? You got a lot of, you got authority, his age, his ability to, how present he is with himself, how your ability to be present, the people around him, the ability to be present with him, to pull him out of what's going on on the inside. He's got to make difficult decisions. You can take them to the Supreme Court and do it in a godly way, right? And, and because you're asserting yourself appropriately and clearly, it's not out of vengeance, so much is out of motive and heart. That's why this stuff isn't quick, right? This discerning of God's will. So to walk through that situation with, with things are happening at the speed of light, just like in leadership, something breaks out, that a woman comes after you, and it's happening so fast, you're being accused, and all of a sudden you're like, you're like this. And the discernment process at that point and the complexity, depending on how much history they've got with God and discernment in the easy times is how much they're coming into that situation with and I say the same to yourself, Mike, right? And, and how do I do discernment under this enormous pressure? So all I'm saying is that it's high-level discipleship for you as you're counseling this person, but it's also high-level discipleship for that person because there's such complexity that has to be slowly threaded out. And um, I would consider that a very high-level application of discipleship in the new family of Jesus. Just like I consider multiracial churches is high-level discipleship stuff because you're dealing with powers and principalities here. You're, it's complicated. There's so much coming at you. And, and if you're going to enter this arena, well, he got inadvertently got pulled into it. Um, you need to equip, be equipped. So it's probably, it's probably worth a reflection for you. You're doing some of the reflection with some wise mentors and really pull that thing apart for your sake, for the future, and for possibly for his. Thank that you. helps a little bit. Yes. Um, here. So I just have two things. One is uh, maybe something to reflect on, but something I've, I've been trying to reconcile for some time is the, the reality of grief and like how that... Um, 
aligns with the ideology of like suffering being a part of Christianity um, and whether or not to suffer is to be fully Christian. And so like there's so much in what you said that I can align with, but so much that makes it super complicated when you think about the pain that people endure, especially if it seems to happen to a certain group of people more than others. And so to reconcile the notion of grief when perhaps it feels like there's an imbalance of grief in one particular group of experiences. Um, So that's maybe something to reflect on because it's not a fully formed question, but it's something that I'm trying to reconcile in my own life. Um, And if something comes up for you around that, I welcome that. But the question that I do have that feels a little bit (laughs) clearer for me in this moment is thinking about what I'm calling this is like a a radical act of social transformation um, in terms of like dismantling the institution um, what, what was talked about earlier, like dismantling, dismantling the institution of religious Christianity and just really working from Jesus out, like working from the inside out. And so what I'm trying to also reconcile is what it looks like to do this work alongside other faith practices. So how do we see this form of discipleship happening outside of Christianity? Do we work alongside Um, Muslim practices, do we work alongside Buddhist practices, things like that, because there's so many different modalities that can help us get at a lot of what you talked about. Like, so I've heard you mention therapy, which really takes a load off, right? But there's so many other modalities that people can use to tap into to understand their personal, right? Yes. Um, That may not necessarily be Christian modalities in in its origin or in its structure, but I, I think in many ways they are indigenous and and Jesus was an indigenous being in some form. So that's my question is how do we reconcile this work of like radical social transformation in Christianity when we're also living in a world that has other faith practices? Um, Is it like a push in a way? Is it an other? Are we centering ourselves in those modalities? Um, Yeah, so that was a lot. Yeah. Uh, It's a, I hope I I answer your question. It's a lot lot in there, you know? I believe, this is now myself, I, I, I believe we, we, we can join with anybody who's in social justice issues, whether it's Jews or Buddhists or Hindus, we're on the same page here. Let's take the issue of, you know, for me, same-sex, mar- same-sex marriage, integrity of marriage of male, female, abortion, you know, I'm for, I'm for life from birth to the grave, okay, personally, you know, and, and, uh, and all its forms. But I'm not intimidated or I'm not, some people don't have enough of a differentiated self to work with anybody who's different. I think part of this journey is I get enough of a self as, a, as, a, as an Orthodox Christian. I know where I, who I am. I can work with Roman Catholics and Orthodox and Orthodox Jews. I can, I can, I'm, I'm not intimidated by you. you you're, you're a Christian and you're in a gay marriage. I'm like, okay, I'm not, I mean, it's not my position, but I'm, I'm, you know, I can work with you. I'm, so I'm not like, I can learn from social sciences. I can go to a secular university. So I'm not, this is, this is not a journey of fundamentalism. It's not. Emotional discipleship draws from the history of the church, historical theology, Roman Catholics and Orthodox. I actually, we need to understand church history and the global church. You know, Rich mentioned the global south. I would say the global church in general. Now, I told some pastor recently, I said, I don't get it. You're judging other traditions like, you know, Catholics and Orthodox but you have skinny jeans and leather jackets and smoke machines. And you're sitting here judging the 21 cops who got their beheaded by ISIS. And I said, 
you arrogant American. You think that you're the church in your white suburb with your leather jacket and your big crowds and your smoke machines. Like you think you're the whole church or your reformed theology. I'm, like I, to me, it's, so, it's, it's, it's heresy. And so, no, I think part of this journey is we, we become much more ecumenical but, broad, but deeply evangelical. And that's my, my thing is broadly ecumenical, deeply evangelical. But I, can go, I, I hope you can go learn from people who are atheists and go to secular universities and learn things. All truth is ultimately God's truth. So, but quickly about suffering. I, the, part of the gift of the African-American church to the global church is suffering. The African-American church has a gift to bring the world out of enormous suffering. And you see it, it comes out. There's still, even with all the changes in the culture, there's still a residue there of a deep longing for God. It's still there. You won't find that in a white, the white American culture because you don't have the same history of suffering. But like John of the Cross says, there are re- there's revelation in suffering. And those who suffer greatly have greater revelations and are given greater gifts from God. I, I believe that the African-American church, I have a friend in, in, in Charlotte, a, pe- a bishop, and he really believes the African-American church has a global mission out of her suffering from slavery, three or 400 years. And I believe all of our sufferings are gifts. EH Discipleship and New Life Fellowship came out of my suffering. I, I mean, I, I think out of my suffering is where I got to this church even happened. I think Drew, I think same thing. I think all of us, our suffering has the gifts of a great future if we'll allow God to take it and weave it into something good. Drew, do you want to take a minute, just, just share, Drew, about your integration of this in your setting? What does it look like in terms of pace and slowness, et cetera? Just why don't you um, respond to that. Yeah, well, actually, I'll talk about something else. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> That I've been thinking about to be differentiated. Um, you know, I so I was under Pete's leadership for ten years, and it's 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 just fascinating sitting in this room because I witnessed his leadership and how real every single point that he made was in his own life. And I realized, like Pete, I think one of the like when we talk about justice, when we talk about the ability to work with people from other faiths, when we talk about kind of all of the he. You really embodied that, and I, and I and I, it was, um, and I think it kind of trickled down to all of us because there was a way in which he really embodied um, this kind of third culture, like you know how Jesus was someone who could speak truth to power and justice, and at the same time be with people, and people can feel so safe around him, and I think this whole emotional, emotionally healthy discipleship, the courses that have been developed and that have now been implemented that have, like, that I was soaked in as I was in your basement, uh, both my wife and I, like, I think, I, I just, I think it's extraordinary how, um, how this really has been a key for embodying a certain kind of leadership. And I realize the kind of leadership that, Pete, that you're talking about, to live a reconciled life that could speak truth to power, that could listen and be non-anxious in the midst of different situations, this really has been the pathway for that that I've witnessed from your life. And I think it's constantly been something that um, I think has informed my life as well. So, yeah, I, I, I just... Um, just want to say, as someone who's been in the room with this man and here at the church and seeped into the culture for many years, and, and now having left the family and um, been on our own, like I, I see how Pete, what you really did embody 
with so much of the principles that have been kind of taught and um, now is is really trying to be embedded into the cultures of different churches. So um, I'm not sure if that's what you wanted me to talk about, but I, I just want to, in many ways, applaud that and say, I think this journey, one of the great gifts I think that Pete and Jerry have done in this emotionally healthy discipleship journey is the creation of these courses that these courses have been, the, uh, are the pathway towards creating a culture. And um, I can't speak highly enough about them. I personally lead these courses in the church that I lead now, because part of it, as he talked about, working through genograms with people from different cultures, working through um, a language of vulnerability in a safe way, working through a language of changing a certain kind of culture, like all of that stuff, I think has been a great gift of, of the courses that have been created. And so I just want to encourage, if anyone's interested in kind of how do, we, how do we change the culture of a church that can get towards a pathway towards a reconciled community, I can't recommend this highly enough. And um, he's not paying me to say this or anything. I really, I just, as someone who's now been, uh, been apart from New Life for eight years and now has... Um, is now teaching and leading the course in our own context in Midtown Manhattan and trying to embody a reconciled community. Um, I just want to encourage that. So if you're interested in talking about how you can maybe start implementing this course and learning more, come talk to me, um, talk to Rich, uh, or talk to Pete. And uh, yeah, that's... And, and, and as I close here, I, I think that's... We're, we're trying to make a shift where we're doing intentional discipleship. And I think Drew and I have talked about this. I, I think there's an intentionality out of your life to others, which you can't get around, you know? So um, that's another way to look at all discipleship thing. And so uh, if you want to come to a live training experience, here's two, one in April, one in June. You may want to think about coming to that. It's a live stream you do from your, you do from your actual house with three other people or your office. And how do I actually bring this to some people? How do I bring this to my church? And uh, we're doing these live stream trainings every couple of months. And uh, folks take it from around the world. So. All right, let me say God bless you, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and have a great rest of the conference.